Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. What began as a tiny rebellion in a handful of distant colonies was rapidly changing. Following the American victory at Saratoga, the Empire of France pledged its support to the Patriot cause and breathed new life into the American Revolution. After a harsh and terrible winter at Valley Forge, followed by a drastic reversal of fortunes due to new French monies, George Washington's Continental Army was finally ready for prime time, but the war itself would soon morph and distant lands rarely associated with the American revolutionaries would find themselves now embroiled in conflict. On this episode, we discuss the forgotten legacy of the year 1778, a very global affair. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On season 3 of the series, we're discussing the American Revolutionary Era, the people, places, and ideas that defined it, and the political ideologies that gave rise to the world's first modern republic. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter at Brady Kreitzer, or of course by searching Wartime Podcast. You can visit my author's website for updates on news, events, and to purchase any of my books, uh, all of which signed by me at bradykreitzer.com. And of course, you're home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. As we move forward into the year 1778, one of the things you'll find in this series is that we are going to break down the American Revolution year by year. This works pretty well most of the time. But I'll be very frank, it doesn't work well all of the time. And today's episode is a pretty good example of why. In our last episode, we talked about the year 1777. But we only talked about it from the vantage point, mostly, of the Saratoga campaign. Why? Well, like all historians, we have to choose what's the most important detail to highlight and what we have to leave out. Not because we have some ulterior motive, but we do have to realize it's only a 45-minute show. On today's episode, we are going to focus on the year 1778, but I will preface that by saying again, we're going to have to make some adjustments. The biggest adjustment we'll make is that, and I hope you forgive me, we're going to go back a bit to the year 1777. When you study the American Revolution year by year, one of the things you find out really quickly is that unless you're really, I think, making a podcast like this, when breaking it down that way is basically essential, it's not the most practical way to do it. Many take a thematic approach uh, when it comes to writing. Uh, Many talk about uh, maybe battle by battle rather than focusing on years. But I think for our purposes, uh, it'll be just fine. The year 1778 really can't be understood without a really uh, very quick discussion of the year 1777. Now, in the previous episode, again, we focused on John Burgoyne, 
Gentleman Johnny Burgoyne's invasion of uh, the 13 colonies of the colony of New York using the Lake Champlain, Lake George, and ultimately Hudson River Corridor. Today we're going to tell the other half of what's going on in British North America at the time. Because remember, John Burgoyne, as important as he was, was not the highest-ranking British general in America in 1777. That honor still falls on General William Howe, who's posted very strongly, and will remain, uh, in New York City until the end of the war. Uh, Howe will not, the army will. So today we'll focus on what Howe's doing, how that in late 1777 affects 1778, we'll get into that, uh, and we'll be prepared, I think, for a more um, nuanced and uh, better flowing discussion. So just set the stage a bit. When we last saw General William Howe and General George Washington, they were in a bit of a standoff. And this basic idea of cat and mouse will help you understand the entire thing a lot better. William Howe and the British Army were entrenched in and around New York City. George Washington and his Continental Army were very much on the outside looking in. They had to be far enough away from Howe that his forces couldn't forage out, range out, and attack him. But they had to be close enough that they could still respond in the event that Howe would make some sort of offensive maneuver toward Philadelphia, where the colonial government's meeting, the rebel government, if you would, the Continental Congress, to protect it. So that's the idea. What I would like to say in this time period is that George Washington, to make it very simple, is completely reactionary. And as we've mentioned before in this podcast, whether it be politics, uh, whether it be world history, whether it be uh, really just everyday business, being reactionary is never where you want to be. You want to be the one setting the agenda, not necessarily responding to someone else's. So with that, understand the beginning. This whole discussion of William Howe and George Washington predicates itself on this. William Howe is in the driver's seat. Whatever he chooses to do, Washington and his rebel army will have to respond. Now, in 1776, again, Howe has pretty firm control of what he wants to have. But in the end, really, he knows this war could go on forever uh, if he just sat in New York and waited for it to play itself out. Instead, Howe decides, and he's correct in this, he really needs to go after Washington himself. Because if you capture George Washington's Continental Army, as weak as they are, less than 15,000 men, uh, sometimes less than 10,000 men, depending on the time period, you end this whole thing. At least that's what he thinks. I mean, that's the basics of counterinsurgency warfare. And again, we talked about that pretty heavily in the beginning of this season. So what uh, Howe really focuses on through 1776 and 1777 is trying to draw Washington out of his quarters into open combat most likely in the state of New Jersey. If you're from New York, you understand how close uh, those really are. If not, again, uh, I'll tweet out some helpful maps at Brady Kreitz or search Wartime Podcast, and you'll see that. But how we'll really quickly find out, and this is to Washington's credit, uh, that if you want to square off with the Americans, if you want to go, say, toe-to-toe with the Americans, if you really want to draw them into a set-piece battle, George Washington is absolutely, positively not interested. The reason he's not interested is because he knows, A, he's badly outnumbered, B, he's horribly outgunned, and C, the longer he survives, that is, his army, the better chance the defense of the American Revolution 
again, defending that idea of the Declaration of Independence has of really taking off and surviving. With that in mind, William Howe makes a pretty bold decision in the summer of 1777, and it's that he's not going to sit around and chase George Washington. He believes the British are the number one military superpower in the world. He's correct. He believes the British hold all the cards. And he does not believe it's, um, I suppose you can say, worthy of his office to try and pursue that sort of agenda. So William Howe, again, in the driver's seat, as we've said, will take the initiative. He loads his men onto ships from New York, and he sends them southward along the Atlantic seaboard. Now, what's his target? Because that's a little bit deceptive. Well, what Howe wants to do uh, is really keep the Americans on their toes. Where is he going with this fleet? His target is Philadelphia, the capital city of the colonies, and the place where the rebel government sits. Why he sends his men by sea rather than by land is to, uh, I suppose you can say, throw a wrinkle into the plans of the Americans. Keep them the reactionaries. What he's going to do, and again a map will be helpful, is sail around the tip of the Chesapeake Bay, which will lead directly uh, into Maryland, which is a short walk to Philadelphia. This is the beginning, and this will be very successful, uh, of the British occupation of Philadelphia. Now Washington's no fool. We've mentioned this. He's a brilliant military mind. If you remember season one of wartime, he really learns the hard way. But he understands that he cannot just sit by and let this much larger force just capture his city uh, and then capture the uh, government uh, that has chosen to uh, speak for them. Again, these men would probably hang for treason against the British Empire. So Washington will try his best to slow them down. And the place Washington wants to prepare a defense to stop Howe's march now from the south moving north to Philadelphia is a place called Brandywine Creek. What occurs in September of 1777, eerily enough, I suppose, uh, but really uh, history is what it is, September 11th of 1777, is what we call the Battle of Brandywine. And the Battle of Brandywine is really unfortunate for Washington because, again, he knows he's probably not going to just defeat the British. I mean, you don't do that. Uh, Washington has very little manpower, very few weapons, very little hope in that regard. He's not trying to bring down the empire with one victory here, but he is trying to buy time for Philadelphia to be vacated by those people considered to be high-value targets by the British Empire. Most notably, the people as Americans we tend to cherish as our founding fathers in the Second Continental Congress. Uh, and that's exactly what Brandywine will allow. Uh, Brandywine will slow them down. Howe will continue his march to Philadelphia. There will be one more uh, largely unsuccessful venture by Washington to slow the approach at a place called Germantown. But before long, Washington realizes uh, all hope is not lost, but he is very much on his heels. He's not slowing down this new British force, and Philadelphia in the fall of 1777, is going to fall to the British. This will drive Washington to a place he'll spend the rest of the winter, and which we'll spend a large part of this podcast today talking about, and it's his winter quarters at a place called Valley Forge. You may know that name, Valley Forge. Uh, it is cemented into American lore in a lot of ways. It is a, a long story and a long tale that has inspired many people in many 
difficult situations before. But Valley Forge is unique because before this, and again, you never really fight in the winter if you can avoid it, Washington has been taking his quarters, his winter encampment, in New Jersey. And the reason is because he's always sort of shadowing Howe from the outside, sort of waiting to see what Howe's going to do first before he actually does it. Now, he's been doing that in New York, in New Jersey, uh, for the last year. But now, since the British have captured not only New York, but also the capital of Philadelphia, which, by the way, the Continental Congress has fled west, uh, Washington's going to do the same thing. And Valley Forge, which is just west uh, of the capital of Philadelphia, it's a national park today, is the location they choose to do it. If there's one thing you should know by now about this podcast, it's that I really don't mince words uh, when it comes to historical events. I really don't care much for political correctness, and I'm not one of these people that gets off on saying that, but I think we have to be as honest as possible when we talk about these things. Now, the Valley Forge story is a very courageous story, you could say. Uh, it's an example of uh, a testament to uh, willpower, right? Mind over matter, that sort of thing. But I don't want to get too much into that because, quite frankly, you'll get enough of that everywhere else. What I'd like to do is give you a realistic understanding of what Valley Forge was. Because, again, Washington will be there from the winter of 1777 all the way through uh, the early spring of 1778. And I want you to understand why. Now, we talked about the ideas of why you want to be outside of Philadelphia. Uh, but for Washington, Valley Forge, and it's named that because uh, there was an iron forge nearby, is not a bad place to be. Uh, it sits up on a plateau. Uh, it overlooks the Schuylkill River. Uh, it's a defensible place. I mean, if the British want to attack and swarm in and crush him, they will have a fighting chance, I suppose you can say, because of the natural conditions that surround it. But for the most part, when Washington goes into camp in December of 1777 with his army, about 12,000 men, things couldn't be any worse. We've talked a lot about the problems Washington has. Again, I'm not going to mince words here. Things were really bad for him. He had very few men. They were leaving by the day because their enlistments were running out. He had very few supplies. Think about this. Going into Valley Forge, December of 1777, about one out of every three men in the American Continental Army have shoes. One out of three. That's a pretty horrific figure. If you've ever walked, uh, you know, a bit in cold weather and bare feet, you know exactly what I mean. I don't even like to take my garbage out. Uh, in, in December and January, uh, yet alone having no shoes uh, at the time uh, because I don't like walking on cold cement. But that is the idea. I mean, you're dealing with pretty treacherous conditions. Men's feet are uh, succumbing to frostbite. Uh, men wrote that they were worried that the British could follow them and find them just by uh, tracing the bloody footprints left behind. I mean, that is ghastly stuff. And you have about 12,000 men living in these horrid, wretched conditions. The amazing part about the story, I think, and it's a real testament uh, to what we're about to talk about, is that that wretched army that goes into Valley Forge is going to come out of it, as a forge would, as a completely different animal, refined, rejuvenated, and prepared for the hard war to come. It's a, an incredible transformation. What I want you to understand is what exactly happens there. Now, whenever Washington first arrives, they build a cabin. Cabins aren't that big a deal for us. But you need to understand the change that happens. Again, one out of three men actually have shoes. Uh, but within the first week that they're there, 
one cabin, which consists of about 80 logs, we'll say, was constructed. By the end of it, uh, in February, say of 1778, uh, almost the end, you have over 2,000 of these cabins built. So you're seeing a major change here. Uh, and it's not just a change of good fortune. I mean, there are major political discussions we have to talk about. As far as what the men ate there, and this will give you an idea of what warfare is like in the 18th century. Uh, you basically had a steady diet of this. They had something they called fire cake, uh, which to really our best understanding uh, is a very delicious, a scrum diddly umptious uh, mixture of flour and water. That's it. Fire cake. Not exactly what you think. Um, and early on, that's the problem they have because they're very undersupplied. Sometimes they'll have a, a spicy uh, sort of stew, uh, which was really just broth. There was not much to it. But these are the conditions we have. I mean, it was very, very terrible stuff. At one point, Washington writes, I'm going to read a quote here, not to bore you, uh, but what he says is that, that unless some great and capital change suddenly takes place, this army must inevitably starve, dissolve, or disperse in order to obtain subsistence in the best manner they can. Washington's really afraid uh, that this war is going to be lost. He knows it at that point. I mean, that's a real fear. He doesn't believe it will happen, but he knows that there's a very good chance of it. And he also fears that if he makes his men winter here, camp here, it may be a death sentence. 12,000 men... Think of this, 12,000 men go into that encampment of Valley Forge. Less than 10,000 come out. 2,500 men will die of the attrition of disease, starvation, uh, during that winter. I mean, that is crazy. Uh, you lose, again, uh, about 2,500 men, not to combat, not to the British Army, not to a musket or a bayonet, but simple disease and neglect. So Washington gets that. He understands that. And he's worried that if it happens, uh, being an army is something that cannot continue in 1778. You may have to break off into small groups and forage and survive and truly make this what we would think of as a guerrilla war. We're not quite there yet. Something has to change. But Washington has a very real fear of this at that point. And I think it's founded uh, from a good place. I think he's right to do so. Now, if you feel like I'm I, I'm painting a pretty gloomy picture here, you're probably correct. I am, and I'm trying to intentionally, not because I'm trying to be dramatic, which, let's face it, we all fall victim to, uh, but because I'm really trying to give you a sense of exactly what they're up against. And I've also sort of predicated this conversation by saying that they will come out of this better. So the question now is why? Well, until about January of 1777... Washington had been riding the Continental Army in absentia now, because again, the British are occupying Philadelphia. They're there. They're marching in the streets. And by the way, they're not exactly viewed as uh, an unwelcome party. I mean, many people in that city consider themselves British. They see the British Army as security. The, the line between a patriot and a loyalist really is pretty blurry at this point as it will be throughout most of the war, and really has a lot more to do with whatever armies on your front lawn. We've said that before. The occupation of Philadelphia really shows that a lot. By the way, I spent an entire chapter on the occupation of Philadelphia in my new book, Hessians, which will be released in May. Forgive me, I had to do it. Uh, but you really get to go on the ground there. That's why I mention it. Uh, at any rate, uh, Washington knows 
Uh, the situation's not tenable. He knows the Continental Congress is really not in good shape either, and he's petitioning them for money and supplies, which they just can't bring themselves to give up, largely because they don't have it. Well, eventually, by January of 1778, the Continental Congress will send a few, I guess you could say, observers to the camp. And what they see is appalling. They see men starving. They see men undersupplied. They see men dying, men they'll need in the fight from the very lack of basic necessities. And they do set aside some funds to aid Washington in that regard. So by the time you get to February, roughly, of 1778, you start to see the story of Valley Forge change. And it changes uh, because he's getting this new influx of money. And that's going to be an important part of the story. That will allow the men to survive. I mean, at a basic level, you know, they can eat. But the new question becomes, what makes them into an army? Because let's face it, a full stomach an army does not make. Something has to change here. Well, what changes is the, what changes is the arrival, uh, I think, of one of the most compelling characters in this story. I'm going to say that a lot this season. I wish I could stop, but I really believe it. Uh, and his name is uh, the Baron von Steuben. To be uh, correct, Baron Friedrich von Steuben. Uh, von Steuben is... Uh, a drill master in the military, but not the American Continental Army, not yet. His original life of service has been in Prussia, uh, in what is today Germany, and what is at the time the Holy Roman Empire in Europe. Now, von Steuben's an interesting guy, because, again, you're dealing with the age of the Enlightenment, this time when new ideas are spreading every day, uh, when people are talking about republicanism, and when people are talking about democracy, and they're not just saying it, uh, but they're doing it. But they're not doing it in Europe. Europe's all talk. They're doing it in America. There have been rebellions in Europe. Uh, the Baron von Steuben has seen them, but they've all failed. And they failed because the old world, the old style, the king, so to speak, has a home field advantage, I like to say, in Europe. But in America, North America, an ocean away, uh, the distance seems to be the difference. So the Baron von Steuben will pack up his things in Europe, and he'll sail to America. He speaks no English, maybe very little by the end of it. But when he gets there, he's going because, essentially, he's looking for a fight. He's a rebel without a cause. Uh, to steal a line. He's a revolutionary without a home. He finds a revolution that suits him, and he goes to Valley Forge. Imagine that. A man who speaks French, a man who speaks German, uh, a man who does not speak English, going to fight uh, in a British civil war, a British rebellion, all because he believes in the Republican virtue that these people are talking about. So the Baron von Steuben's a really compelling character. But what he brings to the table, I think, is is very important. When he arrives, he tells the American Continental Congress, I want to be part of this. I think I can be useful, but I'm going to let you see the proof. Uh, he says, don't give me a commission. Don't make me an officer. See what I can do. And then we'll go from there. He knew very well he'd be needed. It was an honorable gesture for a stranger in a new land. But von Steuben the Baron is a drill master. That's what he does in Prussia. And the Prussian army, if you know anything about it, is one of the most uh, dedicated, disciplined, and effective military forces in all of Europe in the 18th century. He's going to bring a little bit of that to Washington. So while he comes to the camp, he sees the men finally eating. He sees them finally able to 
do something like practice marching, uh, loading their weapons, moving in formation. Because again, on the battlefield, discipline wins the day. And even though he speaks no English, he has French interpreters there. He turns Washington's army into uh, an effective fighting force. Now, I'm not going to overstate this. This is not like, you know, he creates Captain America or something. Uh, but he does take them from a rabble of volunteers, many of which have never really fired a gun before. Uh, they join the army and really makes them into something that resembles a modern army. Now, remember, the British are light years ahead of this. Uh, but without Baron von Steuben there, that never occurs. So by the time you see the thaw in the spring of 1778, you see Washington's Continental Army in a new place, in a different place. Uh, they now have some supplies, but they also have a rejuvenated faith uh, in what they're doing, and they have the tools at least in terms of training, to find victory. Baron von Steuben is a unique character in that he knows, I think, this is something different. And the reason I say that is not, you know, lip service. In the Prussian world, as a drill master, he would never work closely with the men. That sounds counterintuitive. But he would train others and they would train them. He wouldn't get his hands dirty. People are shocked at Valley Forge, when the Baron von Steuben actually works one-on-one -on -one with individual soldiers and regiments, and he turns them into an army. He teaches them how to think like an army, how to move like an army. In fact, he even writes a manual for the army that will be known as, uh, in papers, you know, casually, as the Blue Book. But believe it or not, that Blue Book will be used all the way until the War of 1812. So it's a highly effective mechanism. One thing we can say for certain is, by the time the spring comes in 1778, uh, everything's different for Washington, and not just because of the training. It's different because the war itself has changed. We mentioned the Battle of Saratoga being vital for this. Now we're going to talk about why. Enter the Empire of France. If you'll recall in our previous episode of Wartime, we talked about the effects of the Saratoga campaign, not just the campaign itself, but why it's important. And a major part of that was that it convinced many onlookers in the world, some who maybe uh, were calling for a bit of revenge against the British Empire, that this was a war that could be won. Of course, we're talking about France, and the revenge that they sought was revenge for the Seven Years' War and the losses sustained there. Well, in 1775 and 1776, the French didn't see a lot of promise in the American Revolution. Yes, it was nice somebody was shooting at the British, because they certainly couldn't afford to do it again. But there wasn't a lot of hope that that rebellion could be successful. Let's face it, as much as we love George Washington, in those first two years, he just wasn't getting it done. But after 1777 and Horatio Gates' great victories at Saratoga, the French changed their mind. And they begin to negotiate openly with American diplomats, and that comes to fruition in February of 1778. In that month, again, still in the middle of Washington's winter at Valley Forge, the French agree with the Americans that they will help them militarily, financially, and logistically in their war against the British Empire. And I'll, I'll stress again, it has very little to do with this love of liberty, as we think, uh, but much more to do with a hatred for Britain and an opportunity to score some major points. 
Now, part of this agreement is that a massive influx of money will find its way into the hands of people who need it most, and it's French money. Money, by the way, the American Republic, when it's over, will have to pay back if there is one. To show that the French have good faith, they agree that the alliance between America and France will not end until there is a sovereign, free American Republic. Uh, and that goes to show how much the French were in on this. They were in it, at least in theory, when these original uh, uh, treaties are signed. They are in it for the long haul. They want to see this uh, really emerge. And again, it's all about hurting Britain more than helping the Americans. But when that happens, the entire game changes. I mean, very quickly within the months of March, April, May, June, uh, the world will find out that France has entered into this alliance uh, with the Americans. And when that happens, the entire war starts to change. Because so far, this has been a very narrow war in terms of scope. It's been an American rebellion in American colonies. But now that the French are involved, the British realize uh, they are a much more potent enemy and a much more potentially disastrous enemy uh, in terms of the larger damage the war could cause. How much damage can the Americans do fighting in Pennsylvania and Massachusetts and New Jersey and New York? Not much. But you're talking about the French Empire with bases in India, with bases in Africa, with bases in the Caribbean. And these are all places that the British Empire have fortunes worth of money invested. And these are all places that they could lose if, effectively, the Seven Years' War reignited. But when France joins the cause, when they join the American fight, that's exactly what happens. And from this moment on, the American Revolution is a very global affair. And you have to understand that as we move forward, because we're going to talk about battles and events that happen thousands of miles away from uh, Boston Harbor and Philadelphia and, and Long Island. I mean, this is a very different war now. And when France becomes involved, make no mistake, they become the real existential threat. That's a good word. That's your $100 word for the day. The real existential threat to the British way of life. The Americans at worst can separate and maybe be reconquered, but the French, they can strip, they can spoil, they can take away your empire. And that's why from this moment on, 1778, British attention will really be focused mostly on them. Moving forward, one of the things I think we have to make very clear is the role that, that politics is going to play in this. I mean, one of the, the issues I, I addressed you in the very first episode of this season was that I want you to think of the American Revolution first and foremost as a political event. That is to say, a clash of ideas. But politics are always part of history. Remember, yesterday's politics are today's history. And as much as I'm sure you despise politics as much as I do, so much so that you can't stop talking about it. Um, uh, it's always part of it. And even in this time period, politics will be a major part of this story. So what do we mean? Well, there's going to be a drastic change in the power structure of the British military in North America. And it's going to come from an unexpected place. 
so far since we've seen this thing really start to really uh, turn into a full-scale conflict, William Howe has been uh, the leading face of the British effort on the continent. And his second-in-command, a person we really haven't talked about yet, named Sir Henry Clinton, hasn't been far behind. In fact, uh, the two have a very open and very public and very nasty feud between the two of them. I'm sure it began as a professional feud, but by 1778, it really became a very personal feud as well. Well, in the middle of the occupation of Philadelphia, which in a lot of ways uh, was the brainchild and the crown jewel of, of what William Howell believed he was doing, British administration will decide it's time for a change. And it will cause a major upheaval, as I mentioned, in the power structure of the military in North America. And the basic idea is that William Howe is out, and Sir Henry Clinton is now in. This is not indifferent than the way college football and, uh, and, and NFL coaches are fired uh, on the first day of the end of the regular season, year after year. When you change your general, uh, your head coach, so to speak... Uh, what you're basically saying is, uh, we're taking this war in a new direction. And as I've mentioned in our previous episode, 1777, the year of the hangman, it's one of the big problems that the British Empire will have. Uh, they have a war, I think, that's very winnable if they follow some fairly strict guidelines. They know what they have to do, but they can't get out of their own ways. And they never, early on, develop a cohesive strategy for winning this war. Not until it's too late, of course. Not to ruin the ending, but it's not going to work out well for them here in North America. Well, when Henry Clinton takes over, there's a large gala ball in Philadelphia for William Howell, sort of a, a farewell ball. He makes it very clear, uh, we're going to take this war in a new direction. And he removes his troops from the city. He virtually, in 1778, gives up Philadelphia without a fight. Now, why would he do it? Well, he understands it costs a tremendous amount of money and manpower to take the city. Uh, most of the high-value targets they wanted left almost immediately, and there really wasn't a lot of purpose for keeping it. I mean, it was draining your resources. This was more his, his uh, previous commander's uh, attachment than his. So he'll draw his forces out of Philadelphia, and he'll march them, not by sea this time, but on foot, uh, out of New, uh, Philadelphia, uh, through New Jersey, and hopefully back to New York. Now here's where the story changes pretty drastically. Because if you'll remember, George Washington's Continental Army was coming out of Valley Forge in Pennsylvania, just outside of Philadelphia, a changed army. They were suddenly more confident. They were suddenly more sure of themselves. And you would be too. You're well-trained, at least newly trained. And all of the major problems that you had before it are beginning to disappear. Why? Because you're uh, awash in money for the first time since the wars began. I can't stress enough how much the inclusion of France uh, really changes this story because their uh, financial infusion of wealth uh, is, is just uh, entirely essential for this story to continue. Washington's army now has supplies, they now have men, they now have bullets and powder for their guns. 
they are ready for the war at hand. So here's how 1778, in a very simple way, plays out. Uh, as the British uh, march out of Philadelphia, I don't want to say they flee Philadelphia, because they really didn't feel like Washington was a threat. He was more like sort of, I guess you could say, uh, an onlooker, that nuisance to the West. They march very slowly and very methodically across the state of New Jersey on their way back to New York. While they did it, and imagine this army like a large train, Washington's Continental Army was following closely behind. And every step that uh, Clinton took, Washington made sure to follow until eventually Washington's army began sort of, uh, I guess you can say, openly fighting the back end of his troop train. So that's what 1778 looks like. It's very strange, a real reversal in a lot of ways. Washington is still viewed as the nuisance, as the problem. Uh, but he's sending out advance guards to sort of pester and pick at the end of Clinton's marching line. Until eventually you have a major battle. Clinton sort of says, enough is enough. Uh, we call the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse. It's a bit of a strategic draw. Washington does some damage. Uh, Clinton continues to New York. They kind of disengage. But it shows how this war has changed. Because to that point, 75, 76, and 77, it's been all the British chasing Washington. And now it sort of shows that the Americans are a little more bold than they once were. Uh, and that happens because of major infusion of French supplies. Now, moving forward, again, I call it a very global affair. I do want to talk about the military contribution of France in the year 1778. And this comes in a few different ways. The one thing France has, which the Americans have almost nothing of, is a navy. I mean, the Americans have some ships, but um, if you've seen the movie like The Replacements uh, or The Little Giants or something like that, that's what we have. Keep in mind the British Navy is the largest navy to ever exist, the, the, the masters and rulers of the world's oceans. We can't compete with them. But because the war has largely been uh, in and around New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, there hasn't been a lot of use for the British Navy anyway. So it hasn't been as dire as I'm sort of making it sound. But that's starting to change, because the British have used their navy to capture uh, America's major cities in sort of the preparation for the end of the war. And again, we've talked about how we always think that you capture the city, you win the whole thing. It doesn't really work that way. To this point, New York is completely under British control. That's because of the navy. Also, uh, that recently fallen under British control, was the city of Savannah, Georgia. Uh, Savannah will fall under British control. Uh, <clears throat> Boston was, at one point, under British control, but that's what a navy can do. And the newest one they've taken is uh, Newport, Rhode Island. It's a coastal city, it's a port, Americans would get supplies through it. I can't stress enough how important logistics and supplies are here. Well, the British Royal Navy can basically blockade any city it chooses to, and they believe that will be a huge part of this story moving forward. And by the fall of 1778, they're absolutely right. They can, they can take away virtually any city they choose. The Americans can't stop them. Well, with the arrival of the French, yes, they did send soldiers and money, but also their navy the entire game changes. Right away, one French admiral stands out uh, as America's 
saving grace, as it seems, a man we call the Comte d'Estaing. Now, d'Estaing is going to try and help the Americans right away, and the way he's going to try and help them is by recapturing, by sieging from the sea, uh, Newport, Rhode Island. That's going to fail. It will. But it shows the capabilities that the French have. In terms of naval superiority, uh, they are an absolutely essential part of the story. Now, here's where things change for us. By the end of 1778, by October and November of the year, uh, Sir Henry Clinton is back in, in New York. George Washington uh, is virtually in the same place he was two years earlier, sort of shadowing from the outside in camp uh, Henry Clinton. It's almost like the year 1777 never happened. Remember, it began with William Howe in New York, Washington shadowing on the outside, that then moved to Philadelphia. By the end of 1778, they're back to square one. Uh, it's what kind of makes this period so frustrating and makes 1778 one of the uh, less attractive years of the war. Not for us, of course. We're here because we love it. But that's what you have. Strategically, not much has changed. Philadelphia was occupied and then was given up again. They're back in New York. The British entrenched on Manhattan Island. George Washington and the Continental Army on the outside looking in. That's the story we have. And when you make it us versus them, good versus bad, America versus Britain, David versus Goliath, that doesn't make for a very exciting story. But when you're able to zoom out and see the new war, the global war, for what it's becoming with the inclusion of France, you see a very different story. Because what occurs is, uh, Henry Clinton will send uh, a few thousand men on ships out of New York City directly south, down along the Atlantic seaboard into the Caribbean basin. Why does he go to the Caribbean? Well, remember, there are 16 colonies in North America, but that's not all the American colonies. There are 13 other colonies in the Caribbean, and these are the colonies because they produce sugar uh, that make the empire the vast majority of its money. It's why at the end of the Seven Years' War, uh, France was very willing to give up almost really all of North America, uh, but would fight till the end in negotiations to keep one small Caribbean island. Well, the British will realize that, and when French hostilities begin, they understand where the new importance is. They know where the money comes from. They know where the high-value targets are. The wealth concentrated from slave-driven sugar plantations in the Caribbean and British colonies like uh, Barbados, first and foremost, but also Jamaica by the time of the American Revolution and the other 11 tiny islands involved uh, are now supreme. I mean, one of those tiny islands is worth more than, say, the entire colony of Pennsylvania or New Jersey in terms of what it produces. I always like to say that no colony is an island especially an island colony. What does that mean for us? Well, island colonies have a long history of depending on the empire. And not to get too much into it, I'll make it very simple. That's for two reasons. There's two reasons why the American Revolution, the rebellion, doesn't spread there. They both have to do with the way of life uh, on the islands. To understand this better, let's pretend uh, I'm an American rebel diplomat and you are one of the very wealthy English planter elite class 
on one of the Caribbean islands, say Jamaica. Here's how the story goes. Uh, the rebel would say, you should be unhappy with the empire. They're passing all of these laws, regulations, and taxes that take away our individual freedoms. But if I'm an island planter, I would not only have no problem with that, I'd welcome it. Because here's the deal. A lot of those regulations that the Americans in North America hate are absolutely essential for making money in the Caribbean. Because many of them, like the Navigation Acts, the Stamp Act, uh, the Proclamation of 1763, and so on, put specific protections in place, embargoes, who you can trade from, who you can't, that make sure that the Caribbean remains uncompetitive. Because remember, there are British colonial islands and French colonial islands and Spanish colonial islands all side by side. And when that happens, why would you buy from the British at a high price when you can buy illegally from the French or Spanish at a low price? So those trade regulations the Americans hated actually were very vital to people making money in the Caribbean. Uh, that's something that you see that's part of it. I mean, that sort of, oh, we're being overregulated, big government argument doesn't fly for them. But the second part, which is much more social, but I think also very important, has to do with the presence of British troops. Remember in Boston how virulent the anger was uh, about British troops being present. Uh, they didn't like them. So if you go to a Caribbean planter and you say, you should not like British troops around you, they would say, well, we feel the exact opposite. We need British troops here. In fact, we need as many as possible. Why? Well, if you looked at any Caribbean island in the British world, any colonial island, say Barbados, what you'd see is very shocking. What you'd see is that the population is about 90 to 95 percent African slave and 10 to 5 percent slave owner. Uh, those odds are perpetually stacked against you. And there's a very real fear on these islands that one day slaves will rise up and massacre the entire white population. Um, there are quite frequent, believe it or not, slave rebellions in the Caribbean. Very few, only four in all of North American history, but they do happen a lot on the islands. Uh, and for that reason, uh, the, the plantation class really demanded British troops to be on that island in the event of an uprising. So what I'm saying is, all of the issues the American colonists have that score a lot of political points, that garner a lot of support for independence, don't really fly in the Caribbean, uh, because they feel the exact opposite. Well, what the Americans feel as government overreach, the Caribbean planters feel as essential parts of their lives. But this is what we see by 1778. Because the declaration of war by the French, the war starts to shift. When Henry Clinton sends those thousands of troops to the Caribbean, He's doing it because he's making a statement. And the statement is, this war has changed. And our new priority as an empire is not Pennsylvania or New Jersey or New York. I mean, those are still important. But where we're really concerned about is everything else in our empire that the French are a threat to. And the Caribbean plays that out. Almost from the beginning uh, of the French intention to help the Americans you start to see plans go in motion from both sides because they kind of anticipated this. They had a contingency plan. And that plan was what islands both France and Britain would take from the other in the event that warfare did break out again. How do we know that? Almost immediately after the French declaration of intention to help the Americans, the French governor of Martinique put his wheels in motion, August of 1778, as soon as he found out. He planned an invasion of the British colony of Dominica, 
which he would capture in September. Now, why did he do it? Well, it's sort of hard to explain, but these islands, the island world, requires a lot of port and docking and accessibility. Uh, controlling these islands, not only controlling their wealth grown on them, but their strategic positioning was a big part of it. When that happened, again, we saw Clinton send troops down. There was a British counterattack against St. Lucia, and the British would capture it from the French. Now, why does this happen? Again, what changes here? Well, what changes is priorities. Uh, you're going to see battles fought in India, and battles fought in the Caribbean, and battles fought everywhere around the world uh, because of this reignition of hostilities. We're now seeing huge troop movements in the Caribbean, because in the Caribbean, the wealthiest colonies in the empire, it's all hands on deck. We've already seen two islands switch hands, Dominica taken by the French, St. Lucia taken by the British. And this is what's going to happen. The, the uh, American Revolution is going to spread. And for every new colony it takes place in, for every new continent the war stretches, attention is taken more and more off of the original 13 American colonies themselves. And this is going to be the way the story develops. 1778 is often overlooked, but I think it's a very important and compelling one. In 1779, however, our next episode of Wartime, we're going to focus on something that hits home a little more. And it's the way the war is evolving now that you're seeing British regular troops, redcoats, put in other parts of the world. It's really going to devolve into a much more personal, political war. Not between soldiers, but between neighbors and families uh, and militia and rabbles. Uh, it's going to become a real sort of bare-knuckle brawl. On our next episode, we'll discuss the year 1779, the Civil War at Home. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.